Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. And I focus on encouraging community because I believe that human beings are basically friendly, tribal animals who enjoy hanging out with one another and doing things together, cooperating together living what we call civilly. At this very same time, there are a very small percentage of us who are very different. This group are avaricious, greedy, dominant, and they are predators. They would rule us if they could. They would like to turn us back into subjects instead of us being citizens. So we must be ever mindful of that particular group while the rest of us continue to cooperate and collaborate. In the words of my hero Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of interviewing Renee Barabo with particular regard to her book, The Winds of Spirit, Ancient Wisdom Tools for Navigating Relationships, Health, and the Divine. While I am interviewing Renee today, I will be joined by Mind, Body, Health, and Politics producer, Charlie Deist, who has a particular interest in this topic. So welcome, Renee, and welcome, Charlie. Happy to be here with you today and talk about some of those engaging subjects you were just talking about. Which which of the engaging subjects are you referencing, Renee? About who's living civilly and who's not living civilly and you know, what shamans do in in that regard and all of it. Well, that's great. To begin with, you just used the word shaman. I was kidding around with you before the uh, we started the program, and I called it that you're really a shah woman. And I'm wondering, actually, if that is a gender orientation to shah men, and maybe we ought to all be saying when the, when the shah person is a female, it's a shah woman. What do you think of that? You know, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to call because, you know, it's one of those places where people get, to get a little bit uncivil about the whole word at all and, you know, the cultural appropriation. And trust me, the day that I had that first dismemberment experience, I wasn't thinking that this is something I'm going to sign up for. <laughs> so... I don't necessarily always use myself in that context of that naming of myself. I see. Tell me, what is a dismemberment experience, Renee? Well, I know Charlie's going to love this conversation. So one day I was I was at a conference and I was walking across the, the campus. And I don't know if you ever met the anthropologist Hank Wesselman. Well, he came up to me and said, well, how old are you? And at the time I was just about turning 40. And I said, just turning 40. He says, he looks at me and he says, oh, yeah, that's when this started happening to me, too. So two days later, he was lecturing to a group of about 300 people. And he said, oh, I better just rattle people in here. So he picks up the rattle. And all of a sudden, I was engaged on this long journey. This was without any medicine work or anything, where I was taken back to Egypt or some other foreign time. And I was totally pulled apart. I was cut open and I was shown back together was arrows. And in the middle, something was taken out of me. And I don't know what was put back in, but 
My friends literally had to carry me from the room and slide me into bed where I stayed for two days. And this was totally sober. I mean, you didn't have any adulterants or mind-altering mm-hmm. substances whatsoever. Mm-mm-mm. Well, that's a that's that's a most remarkable experience. How did you integrate that? Well, the first night I had a dream that I was taken in a spaceship to the garden and I was interviewed for a job and I got the job. I guess that's when I got the job of, okay, Renee, you're going to sign up for this lifetime to be of service. And I, I then for two days, I wanted to prove that what had just happened to me didn't happen. Like, cause I was so ripped open. It felt like that I had had a hysterectomy and I tried to lift up a table and I, you know, I immediately had to go back to bed because it was just such an altering experience that I tried to put my, my logical reasoning to that didn't justice happen like that. And yet there was no way to deny that it had because, because of the physical physicality of me being in bed and my friends having to carry me out of the room that day. So what did you do next to integrate this experience? Well, then I think I started to really look around to, you know, when you have an experience like that, then you try to explain it through, you know, reading. I read his books and then I went to Peru and to Chile and, you know, eventually worked my way back around to some of the plant medicines, maybe 10, 10 years later after that. Oh, I did the Anipi Lodge for 10 years. I tried to explain away the experience by getting the education to behind it. I see. And prior to this remarkable experience, had you taken various plant medicines or not? Never. So that came later? That came much later. And did that come in your travels to South America? Yes and no. My teacher was actually in Santa Cruz area, so with the the medicine work was really more in this country. I did do some in, in Peru once and I had done the San Pedro in Peru, but that was very heart opening, the San Pedro. And but I had done a lot of other spiritual work. I had done the twelve steps in AA and cleaned out a lot of stuff, but I was still, you know, a lot of the ornery, the unhappy, the you know, all of those things didn't go away. And that came much later when I, I did the um Santo Daimi ceremonies and really cleaned out some deeper wounding of it. So that first experience opened the the door into me searching deeper for meaning. And then the later experiences kind of refined it. And at one point in your life, were you suffering from uh, alcoholism? You know, I, I was. And I don't know I, to this I, day. I, excuse me. I asked that only because you mentioned doing the 12 steps. And so then I was going to follow it with how you conquered if you had alcoholism. What happened was for me, you know, there was a lot of alcoholism around me as a child. And so I don't really know if I was a severely codependent person. So it just seemed like that I was the most important thing in a bar that I didn't leave it. But when I was 30, I opened a restaurant and my father, the day after my grand opening, had a massive stroke. And I thought oh. to myself, like, I don't want to die at 52. So I, I I quit drinking, but then all of the other stuff emerged. Yes, all the other stuff I'm quite aware of, yes. and But following the remarkable experience of what you refer to as dismemberment, which sounds fantastic, really, um, you, you referenced that you then went on and did experience um, some uh, plant medicines. Yes. And, you... you know, I don't know if you know, but I work in the behavioral health field. 
I, I do the marketing and outreach for a, a, a startup company. And what is really curious, and I've listened to some of your, your podcasts, what's really curious for me is that, you know, that the, the plant medicines are now catching up with the behavioral health field. And so I was like a 20 years in advance. But what happened for me was three years after quitting drinking, I ended up in a psych ward because at the time they didn't have treatment that it, it was either a psych hospital or, you know, or Karen at the time. And so, you know, it was kind of a backwards road for me. And I started doing Ayurvedic medicine because I didn't like the way the lithium made me feel. And so I took this real spiritual, you know, real spiritual path. I didn't find the plant medicine till like 25 years in. And for me, that became the refining, the refining moment of my of my uh, recovery after I did a lot of the the groundwork, it was helpful. But now, like, you know, it's great to see that the young psychiatrists, and I say young, you know, the 30, 40, 50-year-old psychiatrists are all, they're all about the ketamines and the the other kind of medicines that are coming through that the shamans have been using in the jungles and other places for centuries. So how would you compare the lithium? What did you take? Lithium carbonate, I gather, I imagine. How, how would you compare the, your subjective feeling comparing lithium to one of the plant? One of, what's one of the plant medicines you took? Uh, ayahuasca, psilocybin, what'd you take? Well, you know, we were doing psilocybin when I was in my 20s. I didn't even know it was, it was making me happier for a moment. But the, the plant medicine I worked most closely with was the uh, Santo Daime, which is a form of the ayahuasca, it's just a different blend of ingredients. And the lithium actually disrupted my day. I was a chef and I used to work 12 hours a day and the lithium created a, created me stumbling over myself to, and the day would take 14 hours. And that's what I said to the doctor. I can't take this medicine because I don't have enough time in the day to cook, you know, and run a restaurant when I'm tripping over myself. So. For me, it just didn't, it didn't feel like I, I was experiencing all of myself. Now, what I've learned about the plant medicine for me is that in the way the woman that I worked with works with it is that you pick a, an issue. What's up next, Renee? What's, what's going on now? And, and she would help me refine it. And you would do it in a way where you worked on that particular issue. And I found like the plant medicine at that point, I would try for a long time. I would do it once maybe six months later, because it gives you a whole body of work to work with for those those next six months to a year while you're, you know, living your life, you mm -hmm. get to see a, a lot of different things about yourself. In your book, you talk about a concept that you refer to in your book, The Winds of Spirit. I want to keep rem reminding myself to say it out loud for our audience. In your book, The Winds of Spirit, you talk about something that you refer to as radical awakening. Tell us about radical awakening, Renee. I think that 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 there's layers of awakening. You know, some people are just knocked awake, like, you know, with a near-death experience. But for a lot of other people, it's like a combination of just, you know, a little bit here, like blossoming like a, like a, a flower. And all of a sudden, one day you realize, oh, I'm 90%, 95% present to my life. You know, it, it, you don't have to go sit in the, in the, the tombs anymore or the, the caves meditating, although some people like that, and that's great for them. But 
to be alive and, and be one of those people who is contributing and be aware of your own, um, your own behaviors, your, your, the, the stuff you do well and the things that you could really use a little tweaking on is really important. And so I think that we have this idea of these monks sitting there cross-legged, but that there's really a lot of people, if you walk around, who have done a lot of work and are pretty radically awake. Talk about the relationship between being radically awake and what you refer to in your book as totally present. When when somebody, when you're... When you're radically awake, you're, you are definitely, you understand the human condition and you receive information from like the wind spirits. If you're not awake, you're not, it's going to, it's going to like pass you by. Like if I wasn't listening to the winds that day, there would have been six other people to write this book because the book was timed now. And I'm not foolish enough to think that had I not written it, somebody else might have. So being, radically awake to get those downloads is like another level but being present in your own life into your own your own struggles your own joys is something that's required in order for you to to take your mind off of those things so that you can be present to receiving the the greater wisdom or the the understanding that we're all connected if a person is present, radically awake and totally present, can they also plan for the future or do they lose out future planning because they're so present? You get, you know, good planners is a really good thing. Like I just built a house and I planned ahead, but I also left the spot where spirit was going to take care of all of the things in the middle of, of those, like all of a sudden, that I need water on the property, all of a sudden a lot comes up for sale that had the water that I could flip over there. So if I wasn't present and awake to that possibility, I might have missed that sale instead of, so you have to plan, you have to be on the Zillow to know that the market was coming up. There's always good planning is always necessary. And you have to be open to the miracles and the magic. You know, the reason I asked you about the relationship between being present and planning for the future is I ran into a situation recently uh, with a, a friend of mine who is in having financial difficulty. And I inquired about the financial difficulty. And the uh, friend who lives in Tennessee uh, said, well, you know, I've been living existentially. I live in the moment. I'm very present. And so you're laughing. Come on, let me tell me what you're laughing about. You know. They're, they're, like that's not kind of sounds like, and I hope your friends doesn't get offended, but it sounds like a little spiritual woo wow. Like you know, we're we're having we're in this human game, and I like to think of it as a real good game. So you got to play some of the rules in order to succeed on this game, and to, to be able to master the rules and also to infuse a little magic really is helpful. But it, huh. it's like the story we've all heard about, you know, the guy sitting on top of the roof waiting for God to come rescue him from the flood. Have you heard that story? I'd love to hear it. So, you know, all of a sudden the fireman comes by and he says, oh, no, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. God's going to come. 
And so then the the next guy comes along. It's the policeman. He says, here, let me help you. And he said, no, no, I'm waiting for God. And then the third, you know, the fire, the the ambulance comes. Come on, you better come. Or the fisherman comes. And he said, no, no, I'm waiting for God. And so then all of a sudden the flood comes and he dies. And he's, you know, at the gates of the pearly gates. And and he and he's there like, well, I was waiting for you, God. Where were you? And he's there like, well, I sent the firemen. I sent the policemen. And I sent the fishermen. And I sent the ambulance. You know, all of these things are at our disposal to to work with. And if it's it's up to us to take these tools and use them. That's a great story. That's a great teaching story, Renee. I appreciate it very much. I want to talk some about terminally ill people and psychedelic medicines and your views of using them and using other shamanistic practices with people who are terminally ill. So Charlie and I talked a little bit about that when we, we got a pre, pre-talk and I was telling him that before that dismemberment experience, I was in my 20s and a really good friend of mine was dying of throat cancer. And um, unbeknownst to me, I, I put him in a one night he was really suffering in the hospital. And so I put him in my in my journey night and I didn't know any of this. OK, I put him in a boat and I paddled him to the other side as what I what I imagined that would be. And we were met by this grim reaper. And I, I, I did that. And, you know, he passed that night when we were in this ceremony. But it was we're talking to my early my my mid to late 20s when I didn't know any of this stuff. And so I, I learned really young that that there was a real thin veil between where we are here and where we're going. And I've watched a lot of people and through my shamanic training as well. You know, we've learned techniques about, you know, where people are and you know, how to help them pass. There's a great deal of fear of death amongst the population. You're aware of that, of course. Yes. Is that necessary? Is that part of the human condition to be afraid of death? Or can we make peace and accept death? Well, I think that's all about that a radical awakening. I was working one time, you know, there there was a time in my, my career because I've always had like the chef career, the marketing career, that I was shown by spirit that I I would have to put down my, at the time I was learning how to do video editing, I'd have to put down my camera if somebody was dying that I, that I needed to help. And, and so I understood that. So a few years ago, um, I was working with a woman who was in her forties, young forties, dying of breast cancer. And we, at the very end of her life, she was attaching on to the people all these spiritual healers that she'd keep around us, she was attaching onto us with a cord because she was so afraid of dying that she was trying to suck my life. And I had to learn that I had to cut that cord and let her go. And it was really, um, it was a really hard lesson in that, that some people really were doing pretend healing work on themselves all out of the fear of this, this dying state. When people come to you who are terminally ill, and I gather they do, you've mentioned several cases already, how do you approach their anxiety and depression? And do you typically use psychedelics in your approach or what else do you do? Well, I have, because I'm not, because I'm not a, um, 
I've only worked with plant medicine for personal healing. You know, I, I would refer somebody out if they were open to that. But a lot of times when people are really suffering about their death, they're not open to they're not open to exploring the fact that they could have a death with that last exhale out being the one of freedom. They're they're usually a lot of people are fighting to live instead of dying consciously. And there's a big difference there for people. If somebody wanted to say, hey, Renee, I really want to die consciously. How can we do this? Then by all means, I would definitely direct them in the, the area of how to use plant medicine to help them. Because what plant medicine did for me was there was dark crevices that no matter how hard I scrubbed, no matter how hard I wrote, no matter what positive affirmations, they like one time it felt like they took a salt lick a wound out of me when I was doing the plant medicine. So I would want somebody who was ready to to pass as light as possible and go with good intention of, you know, that transformation. And I think some of these more weightier illnesses we're, we're facing at this time is about that we haven't done a lot of our own personal work to start with. So people who are approaching death and haven't done much personal work are going to suffer a great deal more than, aren't they? Some. It all depends on their karma, too. Like, what is, uh, what, what, what is, excuse me. Sorry. What is karma? No, go ahead. What is karma? So, you know, according to the Swamis, the karma is the the patterns that are the deeper soul patterns that that you have that you they either come in with you this lifetime or you create them through behaviors that you've created this lifetime like my father you know he wasn't the nicest guy always you know we I've discovered five or six brothers and sisters after he's gone I mean he just lived his life like it was just all about him so those are karmas that he created more during this lifetime than anything that he brought in with him. But then there's certain soul patterns or family patterns that are, are things that you, uh, you know, that you bring in for your lifetime. Did you use like 23andMe or some kind of a system to locate these? Uh, how did you, how do you find five or six uh, siblings that you never knew you had? You have to remember, I'm living present and awake, so I didn't find them. I was not looking. They okay. followed me after I had done, I thought the ancestor DNA was a good idea because I wanted to, because I was tracking the winds. I wanted to know, like, were these winds related to my ancestral patterns? And all of a sudden, like, people started reaching out to me on Facebook telling me that we were a familia match. Wow. Wow. What a, what an experience. That must have been phenomenal for you. I wasn't so pleased about that because I thought I'd done all this work with my dad. And then all of a sudden... Somebody says, oh, your dad's my dad. And I'm thinking like, oh, no, I buried him 30 years ago. Let's not bring this back up. <laughs> oh, it happened that many years later. It didn't have I, I was mistaken. I thought right after he died, they came forth. 30 years later, they came forth. Can you imagine? Uh, it's hard. Well, I've heard stories somewhat similar. I have a friend named Inez Stora uh, who lives in, um, in Inverness, California. And um, all her life, she thought she was Catholic. And, uh, and when she was 63 years old, her mother was dying. And on her deathbed, uh, she told uh, Inez that she was Jewish and that they had hidden their Judaism out of fear going back hundreds of years in the family. But on deathbeds, they passed the information on to one another. And so that was 
that was a kind of shock of, that was a, 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 a sort of cousins to your shock. You know, so finding something. That, that's terrible. Yeah, finding out something later in, so far later in life that uh, that is, you know, rather shaking. So for her, if she went to a sh- shamanic practitioner, they could help clear up that ancestral hurt, that ancestral lie, that ancestral, that, that, dar- that, that fear that she, she was probably carrying it with her in some ways in her whole life that was keeping her from being her optimal self and not even knowing what it was linked to if she hadn't done any deeper work. Because she was carrying that uh, uh, subconscious. What she actually did, Renee, was she went down to the southwest of the United States and located an entire small population of people who were the same as she was. She Mm. found people, they were conversos going back to the Spanish Inquisition in in the 15th century. And these people living in Arizona and New Mexico were practicing Catholics, and they would have a statue, she found, of the Madonna in front of their home. And every day when they came home, they would kneel down and kiss the feet of the Madonna so that their neighbors could see that they were doing it. What the neighbors didn't know was that carved out in the foot of the Madonna and then sealed over were various Hebrew and Jewish uh, sayings and material, uh, and what they were actually doing was maintaining their Judaism, but doing it in total secrecy hundreds of years later from when their ancestors first started doing that. And it, she, Inez ended up going to a convention of these people called Conversos. It's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating story. And, um, a man wrote a book on it called The Mezuzah in the Madonna's Foot. The mezuzah is a little Jewish uh, symbol that has the uh, scrolls inside of it. And uh, anyway, that's a sort of a side issue. Let's come back to your to your book, uh, The Winds of Spirit, that Charlie turned me on to. Talk to us about winds. So when I started doing the research for the book, I was up on uh, the bluff of uh, Abby's Landing out in Whidbey Island. And the wind started to speak, and I first thought they were, it was a metaphor, you know, like Mary Poppins comes in on an east wind and blows out on a west wind, and Sherlock Holmes talks to, you know, talks to Watson about an east wind blowing. And I started looking for all the metaphors of the wind. Then somehow it, it was like a, it was like a, a, a pilgrimage. Then all of a sudden, I started to find all these winds from all these cultures that, you know, predated Christianity. And I thought, like, well, what is this about? Then I started to learn that Ruach is a wind, Nirvana is a no wind, uh, Holy Spirit is a wind, that all of these traditions had taken wind as as their God, but they didn't dare call it wind because who would need a preacher if we could just all go out and have these conversations with the wind ourselves. So it was long about the time that we moved from the outside into the inside and we put these wind eyes, they called them wind eyes, windows were wind eyes in our homes 
that all of a sudden we needed an intermediary to in- interpret the messages we were receiving directly from nature. That, I never heard of a window referred to as a wind eye before. I love that. Charlie, you were going to say something. Yeah, and, and neither have I. And it, it, it's funny just now I'm, I'm looking out my window and, and realizing that I've spent much of the last few weeks cooped up indoors with all the rainstorms that we've had. And as a result, I sort of feel my spirit sagging a little bit, like I'm I'm not attuned. And uh, it, you wrote a beautiful book, Renee, with Winds of Spirit. And as a, as a sailor, that's one of my other hats, moonlighting as a, a sailboat captain. Uh, a lot of what you wrote resonated with me. And in particular, I'll share a story about what kind of kept me sailing uh, was I was going through a period of uh, of, of um, sobriety after a, a long period of, of inebriation. Eventually, I found my way into the 12 steps. But it was really sailing that before I found the 12 steps was my uh, was, was the, the, the branch that, that got me uh, into into recovery, because there's something about sailing that forces you to be immediately present. And I think it's it's the winds, it's the elements that that are at once demanding and alternate between giving you these adrenaline rushes and then simultaneously sort of soothing the nerves. Uh, and I, I think, you know, just to give listeners some, some sense of how the book is written, you talk a lot about, you know, your, your, your practice as a, a practical shaman, uh, but you also give this beautiful extended glossary of uh, 29 cross-cultural inner winds, these, these sort of different words that cultures have come up with or that, that they've been given from the winds uh, to, to describe. And I'm wondering if, if maybe you can share a little bit about uh, the different kinds of winds. I think you, you divide it into uh, three, three categories there. Uh, I, I had them in front of me, maybe cardinal compass winds, inner winds, and global winds. Uh, maybe just sort of, sort of an overview of, of your book, uh, Winds of Spirit. So the the cardinal winds and some of this it keeps revealing itself to me. So I, I want to say after ten years of this study, I still feel like a, a novice. And thank goodness I teach it because my students take it even further and deeper. But right before the book went to press, I realized that the cardinal winds are the way that we've been organizing consensual reality as long as we could write and speak. It's definitely speaking and writing, but that that people have, if you look at to the caves of Lascaux and some of the earlier cave uh, dwellings, that there's there's always this this idea of these four directional winds holding holding this planet into place, and and if across cultures, many of these winds have the same um, the same meaning, like the east wind, the the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west, and you know, and, and but then and some in the north and the south that depending on where you are at any given time, that these two winds are always in opposition to each other, where the other ones are complementary with each other. And so that there's this this guiding pr- pr- principle of uh, oppositions and cooperation that existed in these winds long before we really started to understand them, like from, you know, 2020. But the then the inter the the intercardinal winds or the the cultural winds that I found were that every single tradition had a wind story. And what fascinated me was that they weren't the same wind story. You wouldn't think that wind is wind. So the go to the Polish wind was about compassion 
and Vea Mate, the Latvian wind mother, was about, you know, nurturing. And Ilmarinen, the, the Finnish wind, was about inventing. And so I believe that the winds became an interpreter of what the people needed in a culture to survive. And Richard, when you started this, you talked about was it community health and wellness or those are the things that the, sh the shamans have always been concerned about, the longevity of the tribe, the, the, that we people got along, and then how was everyone going to sustain themselves? And so these winds gave those people that information. And when I got a little more curious, I started to look at when the winds were, mo when these wind stories started to come in. Now, we all know that when the, the Spanish Inquisition and the missionaries went around the world, they these missionaries could write. And so they started writing down these. So you always have to read them through the interpretation of what their cosmology was, because it was usually tainted. Um, and so there was that part of it, but that how different they all came to be. But then I started to think about when the, when, um, you know, I was reading some Graham Hancock, when, when the, we've got the collision of the of the uh, comments onto the planet and everything froze. It seems like the winds come out at very lifetime, life-changing times. Like they go to the global winds of what's going on now. I believe we're at the end of the, the Holocene and that we're in this gap period between uh, what we're, we're calling the Holocene. And, and it's in these gap, these interglacial gap periods where change really has to take place on the planet. And I believe this is when these winds of spirit come out is during these gap times in order to assist humanity either towards its evolution or its destruction. Long story short. <laughs> right. And and you talk about how winds can be too extreme or, uh, you know, that, that, that it's not all about necessarily nudging us in, in, uh, in the right direction. At one point you referred to kind of a, a period of, um, I think a relapse or a, a, a binging and uh, and a cocaine binge where where the destructive winds howled through your life. Um, but it's about sort of finding a balance where we can wield the winds. And again, as a sailor, uh, I appreciated the metaphor of trimming your sails. And we also have something called a reef, which is where you tie down the bottom portion of the sail in in particularly strong winds. Uh, so I, I guess there's sort of a, a sense in which we can prepare for uh, for for these stronger winds and what might be destructive under certain circumstances if we're not prepared and if our sails aren't trimmed correctly can be harnessed to get get the boat where it needs to go or, or you know extending the metaphor to uh, to, to to grow to mature. Uh, but but what is what does this look like uh, practically and you know are there exercises that we can use uh, in order to be better attuned to, to what the winds might be telling us at a given point in time? Well, one of the first things is we have to listen. And we're so adept at looking at our smartphones and everything else that it's hard to, you have to go outside. You know, we have to, we have to go back to, like, for example, two years before, uh, the year before COVID hit, I was being told this windy tale. And I was thinking like, wow, this would make a really good science fiction movie. In fact, I was pitching it to a to a, a producer in Hollywood, she thought, well, that's a really interesting, interesting tale from the winds. I'm there. Yeah, it's very interesting. The winds were telling me a story about a time that, and I'm listening, right? About a time when people, the little boy couldn't go outside. He couldn't go outside. And when he could go outside, he had to wear this helmet. 
I didn't get all the details, right? He had to wear a helmet and he could go out for short periods of time and that we could go into the future and heal it from there. And, you know, then then a year later, it, it was lockdown. And she said, no one's going to want that story now, Renee, you know, because it just came true. So the thing is, is I suggest that people, the first thing you do is go outside and take a wind walk. And a wind walk is where you start to, you go out to your front door, you ask the wind a question. Hey, should I buy some new shoes tomorrow? I don't know, whatever the question is. And then you you wait till the wind kisses you on the cheek because in the in Peru they call it kissing the wind. Uh, you know that's what they call kissing spirit is blowing kissing spirit when they blow the wind. And then you walk and and you'll get an answer. The winds will really give you answers. Like when you're in a sailboat, how do you know when you're going to trim those sails? How do you know when you're going to batten down? You're paying attention to the cues. So I'm picturing this now as you're talking. I live right on the Pacific Ocean, about three hours north of San Francisco in a little fishing village, former fishing village called Fort Bragg. It was only fishing and logging, and now both of them are gone. I'm right on the ocean, so I get a lot of wind. So I'm, I mean, it's, I get wind that pushes the furniture on the, on the deck right across, you know, knocks it down. So I'm picturing what you're saying, Renee. I'm going to walk out. I'm going to do this after this program when I go home. I'm in the studio now. And I'm going to go out on the deck, and I'm going to let the wind touch me. Now take me to the next step. Teach me. Go, I'm, give me the lesson, and I'm going to do it. Well, I know, you know, so you formulate a good question. Start with a yes or no question or a question that can be easily answered. Don't go out and, you know, ask for your next career. Start with the little ones because a lot of times when we, when our intuition starts to work, we don't trust it, you know, so you have to start with a question that could be answered in a way that you'll understand. And so that's what you have to do is you have to tell the wind, hey, give me an answer that I can understand easily. I mean, how simple should I be? Like, should I should I have uh, dessert after dinner tonight? Or you gave me the example of should I buy a new pair of shoes tomorrow? Something like that. Yeah, like I would once I started getting into this, I would get I would get new processes to teach when I'd be on my wind walk. But I didn't start that way. I just started like, you know, how does this work? That's what we want to know. I'm going to be on my deck. Charlie's going to be on his boat. We wanted we want to do one of the Barbaro exercises with the wind, and we want you to teach us. So, like, what's 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 something that's pressing in your life right now? Do you have a, a something that you're choosing between? Like, should I go to the theater on Friday or not? Okay, I've got one. Okay, so then you're going to take that question. You're going to go out on your deck, and you're going to say, "Wind." I'm looking for an answer. Should I go into San Francisco this weekend and go to the play? And this is just an example. That's and a good one. I'll, I'll go. And I'm going to go with that one. Should I go to San Francisco and see the Diego Rivera exhibition? Well, I can tell you the wind would say yes. <laughs> but, you know, like, so, you know, they get the timing on it. So, But I, I, I need to know how to accept it, you know, uh, Charlie right. and I. We would need to know. You know, what do we feel for? What do we subjectively, you know, how do we make it this happen for us? So what are the signs that you get? Like, I used to have this man who, in my sweat lodge, whenever I see a feather, I know the answer is a yes. Oh, I So you've got to say, show me a yes, show me a no, so that you start to understand your own rhythms of signs. 
Like okay. if you go out the door, ask for that question, you take a walk and all of a sudden you see a really, you know, a Frida Kahlo painting on the, on the, through the friend's window. Oh yeah. Well, that, give me a, that's a, a good sign. So you have to, you're putting your attention to a question and then you're asking the wind for an answer and they might not come slap you right on the head, but they're going to give you maybe a subtle sign to start with because you don't really, when you get those wind slaps, those are, those are, those are when you stop because you didn't listen. Okay. So Charlie's on his boat and he asked the question, should I go back into port now or should I stay out here for another hour? That's a simple question. Yes. And, and so then you'll, you'll, you'll feel into the wind and it will let you know, you'll have to start to be subtly listening to it. So how do you know now, Charlie? How do I know now? Well, Maybe it depends on the time of year, whether the the light is is fading. Uh, the tide is a big one. If it's going to be too shallow, sometimes I I might have trouble getting into the marina. Uh, those those things can often be you know easily verified with a, a quick check of the the tide table or the sunset. But other times it might be a question of you know well the winds are dead right now and maybe I'll stay out a little longer if they're going to pick up. So I want to know are the winds going to be picking up. So when I, one time I was doing a, a reception, uh, a, it was a wedding party for somebody and I started to call the winds. So Charlie, if you're out there and you need some wind, there's, there's, there's things that there's tricks that you can do with the wind. The sailors used to go to the wind, witches for wind knots. And mm. so the wind, the wind, witches would make the wind knots. And so they would untie one when they needed a little stream to get back into shore they would tie, untie two when they needed to, you know, really get somewhere. And they would need three when, you know, they really, like, they never knew what would happen. So you might be carried, for you, it might be better to carry some wind knots out on your on your boat with you when you go out. What about what about nickels? I think you tell a story in your book about oh, yeah. the, the coins. How, how does that work? Well, that's the, that's out of Boston. They use the, the they would throw in... Um, a one nickel or a, you know six pence for this for a strong wind, and then they throw in more. So again, it, it becomes the intention of that we've empowered these knots, or we've empowered these these nickels, these silver dollars, with the power to give us the storm that we need in order to get going. Because there's two spots in the in the south of the equator where the wind doesn't blow the doldrums. And so, but in your life, you could also be experiencing a doldrums where there's no movement. If somebody just dies and you're in your own grief, you can't get out of it. So we have exercises like these wind walks, which I want you both to try and see if you can get some simple answers. So then Charlie, when you're out there, you really know how to better take care of everything. But then, oh, I might need my wind knots. Then I'll be happy to share with you that. And there's one, you know, but there's something really quick that I think, Richard, that would be really helpful for you. An easier tool that you know is going to work because that was more subtle. So say you have this reoccurring thought you can't get rid of, okay? Or somebody is on your mind. So you can write it on the air. You can call to Fang Popo and she can come down on her tiger and she'll come down with her wind sack and collect that thought, tie it up. She'll take it back out past the furthest galaxy and and you can take it away no easily that's another really easy trick i think i've got the best method i'm going to get an app on my phone and the app is going to read the wind coming in and then i'm going to call you on the phone on your cell phone and you're going to tell me what to make of it okay 
You got that's a deal. I'll help you out to get started. Yeah, but I think it's she- about trusting that intuition. And I can see from the books in the background, you really trust the the trust the books, trust the back. But now we got to move that inside and trust trust what you know. I totally agree with you. The books are for the head, but what right. you know is is deeper. Is for the is for the the intuition, of course, and the wisdom. Exactly. Now I'd like you to. T- we have some time left, so I'd like you to go into a discussion, please, for a while of the winds from the four geographic areas you describe in your book, the winds from the east, the west, the north, and the south. Tell us about them. Now, this is where my book comes in a little bit different from some of the other traditions. And I'm kind of a little heady researcher myself. So (laughs) in the middle of my living room, I had taken, I had this big chart with all the east, the west, the south, and the north. And I kept throwing, this is what the Vedics believe. This is, you know, this is what the this is what the these traditions believe. This is what they and I and I kept piling up what tradition said about each direction. And then I decided that I had to throw out all of that because none of them really all they they agreed about the east, the sun rising, and the west, the sun setting, but the north and the south and where emotions were and all of that weren't always as clear. So in the east wind, when the east wind is blowing in your life, um, the Vedics, and I really resonated with this, believe that all your mind, memories, and beliefs come from the east winds. That all the past memories, the future memories, are all they're all stored in the east. And that really resonated with me because, you know, you think about a nor'easter coming up the, the coast of uh, the United States, and what does it do? It wipes out everything. And if you've ever been after a nor'easter goes through or after a big storm, it's almost like the silence is impenetrable. It's just the sky is clear, like after a storm. And so that's the same kind of clarity we get when we understand that there's the, 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 the east wind comes through. And in the Bible has, um, 33 instances of the east wind and only three of the west. And that, that's not any, like, you know, because there's, there's always this room for redemption, this re-beginnings, these new ideas. The south wind, if I went with the, the weather, so the south and the north wind are always in opposition to each other. And think about it. If the north is about our spiritual awakening, our community, the things that you talk and hold for this program, or our, our northern ideas, they're, they're, at the, they're at the height of our pinnacle of our experience, but they're always challenged by our emotional south. And in, in traditional mythology, the south wind was always in opposition to the north wind. The north wind would freeze the crops, freeze people out. People would die of starvation. And this young soul from the south would always go up and you know, go against the North wind to bring back summer. So we're always, our emotions always pushing against our, our spiritual in order to, for us to blossom, to reawaken, to, to regrow over and over and over again, because this is a cycle. And the West is where we die. The West is where the sun sets, the endings, our physical harvest. And we like to think that when we get to the harvest, that's the reward. No, no, no. That's when we gather up all of the supplies that might get us through that long winter. So 
this 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 cycle keeps us growing spiritually over and over again. And so what I teach is that people should get off the, the linear calendar and get back onto their cyclical calendar and realize that every experience they have really is a cycle of experience. And that the same thing is this interglacial time that I'm talking about in the global. We have this interglacial time in our life where there's a gap experience between the time we finish one cycle and move to the next cycle, but that if we really look at our life, it really cycles around many times. Where, uh, did you have something you wanted to say there, Charlie? Yeah, well, I I, uh, I wanted to to quote if you if you don't mind, Renee, from the the chapter of your book uh, on the West Wind, the Cardinal Wind of the West, and uh, you open up uh, with a, a quote from Percy Shelley, and uh, and and there's a quote in the chapter it says, "Drive my dead thoughts over the universe like withered leaves to quicken a new birth," and that idea of cycles, uh, you know, I think. This is something that's very relevant to, to our current project, looking at the end of life and how people confront these questions of their own mortality. Uh, you know, you write that many traditions view a pernicious west wind as a harbinger of death. In the Bible, the west wind warns of the end of time that will eventually bring forth the restoration and a renewal of faith. Shamans view death as, a, as more than a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Death wears many disguises, among them the loss of innocence, physical death, or spiritual initiation. Like the natural cycles of night and day, we are continually dying and being reborn. When sunlight retreats into darkness, it is a blessing, allowing for the rejuvenation of our body, mind, and spirit. Uh, so I guess the question that I have is kind of how can people prepare themselves to be a blessing to the people in their lives or, uh, or, or to, you know, to, to the world or to prepare for the, their, their next regeneration? Uh, how, can they, how can they prepare when they're coming to the, the end of a season of life? What a great question. And I love your, your depth and wisdom, Charlie. I think you're quite an quite a awakened soul. and. It's with with a lot of understanding that if you think about like these dead leaves that we're talking about, like first of all, like the if you've ever been to a New England fall, the leaves are most beautiful when they're dead. They're the colors come out when they're dead. But that also that it's in that breakdown of that deadness that refuels the next cycle. Like the leaves break down and into their carbon and all of their components. And that and that's what gives life again. And so I think that that's really what the, the 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 religions tried to take from from nature was that all that dies is reborn in the spring. You know, you you could call it a different way, but you know, the parts of your body that break down give life to something new. And whether you whether you think this is your only life or not, you could always, if it is your only life, then you could always give up those parts of yourself to be. Um, better earth for for the for the trees that are going to come to grow after you because we're only here for like just a, a blimp and there's so much more and to really know that if you're really of service that you're giving you're giving yourself to something greater always what do you think the experience that so many people share from their uh, plant medicine experiences of of a kind of ego death um, is that a, some, a kind of preparation in your mind, or do you agree with that characterization, or can you relate to that, uh, or, or what uh, you know? What is it that you think people are are reporting from from those experiences? Well, I think it all depends on the person and 
how much other work that they've done on themselves. Like, you know, there's, there's levels. Like I know I'm a little bit reserved on those things. Like I haven't had that, you know, one of my friends, she met the the plant, the ayahuasca spirit. The I don't know that I've ever met her because, you know, but then my Swami said that I could see the divine mother standing in front of me if I wanted to, but I'm a little more reserved. I'm the practical shaman. I want, I want this life. I, I want people to eat up the eat up the plate of food from this life. So it I think it all depends on what you're seeking from the medicine work that pe- people do. But I think that the 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 people who are be dying who would take the medicine, it could really clear you from any of the baggage that's keeping you so that you have to come back and do this journey again, because this I, is a hard one. I see we're moving towards the end of our time. And uh, I want to I have a couple of personal questions to ask you, Renee, and feel free to say that you don't want to answer if I'm probing too hard. But I'm I'm interested in your nutritional plan. What kinds of things do you eat? Well, you know, I'm a hunter-gatherer, and I believe that, you know, that I eat all kinds of things. And I try, I say, if you're going to eat a bowl of ice cream, eat it with a lot of love. Now, as I've gotten older, there's certain things that I probably shouldn't be eating as much, but I eat out of all of the groups of, of food. Now, if I'm going to do ceremony, I probably eat a lot lighter. But I just love food and I love the ritual of food and I love the ceremony of food. And, you know, and I try to, I try because I do a lot of um, Vedic meditations too. I try to, I try to get in alignment with, with their thinking about, you know, that I shouldn't eat meat and I shouldn't do this, but I'm not a shouldn't kind of girl. I I believe, you know, I believe if something's cooked with love, it's going to be really good for you. So your, your your nutritional plan is really in line with your attitude towards life, which is that you want to experience the fullness of life rather than a bunch of no's and a bunch of shouldn'ts and a bunch of don'ts. Right. And do it with a lot of joy. Like, you know, I went to this new ice cream store the other night and it was really <laughs> delicious. They're making, and, and, and I, you know, I, I don't do it every night, but when I do it, I'm going to be happy about it. Yes. Charlie, do you have any further questions for Renee before we close? No, I was just thinking about uh, someone who had a fitting New Year's resolution, which was that they were going to enjoy their food before they judged it. And I think that that's a, a, another way to put that. And I, I agree. I, when I eat ice cream, I'm going to do it with a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. Renee, sometimes when we leave an interview or an event and we're walking home or driving home, we have the thought, oh, shucks, I wish I would have said blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to ask you now, and I am asking you, to take a little pause and go inside. Is there anything you'd like to say to our audience that we didn't cover that you would particularly think of worthwhile to share with them? The first thing that came when I closed my eyes, and thank you for that invitation, was that for the people who are listening who are very interested in your your topics of uh, death and dying you know this don't leave a bunch of regrets on the table you know don't leave that ice cream cone unfinished don't you know if i had any don'ts it'd be like eat this life with two hands and and a, a full heart because it is just a fleeting moment and there's going to be nobody there judging you at the end except for your yourself 
Thank you. I love your attitude, Renee. You have a marvelous attitude towards life. And and thank you so much for sharing it with us today on our program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. It was, it's, uh, it's been really uh, educational and fun. And, and Charlie, thank you for joining us today. I, it was great having you here. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Richard. And thank you, all those of you out there who join us in Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We really appreciate your being part of our community. Please go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Subscribe. Join our community. We are listener-supported. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Oh!